0: On Tuesday of this past week, I was invited to participate with some Richmond area clergy in a meeting with one of our U.S. Senators, Senator Mark Warner. My friend and minister colleague, Tyrone Nelson, who is the pastor of Six Mount Zion Baptist Church in Jackson Ward, invited me to this clergy meeting. As As you may know, Tyrone Nelson is also one of the elected officials on the Henrico County Board of Supervisors. As it turns out, there were about 15 preachers at this gathering that took place in the East End of Richmond. I was the only white preacher who was present. The only other white person in the room was our Senator Mark Warner. When our senator walked into the door, he placed some prepared notes aside and he said, I had prepared some comments, but I'm not here to speak. I'm here to listen. What is on your mind? These African-American pastors around me started asking questions and a discussion began. The first question was about the Affordable Care Act and how this is going to affect our congregants in the coming months and years. Soon the conversation shifted to a discussion about jobs and the difficulty finding good jobs, especially in the east end of Richmond. I was just listening, I was observing, realizing the privilege of being part of this conversation, but so far also realizing I had little to offer. There was discussion about felony convictions And how very hard it is, very hard it is for people who have been convicted of a felony to serve their time and then find a real and prosperous life after that because of how hard it is for convicted felons to get jobs. Even if you're living a good life and doing well, it's very hard. This is how the conversation went. And then the conversation shifted to Ferguson, Missouri. This group wanted to know, how do we help our people? How do we help our young people especially feel like they have a fair chance in life and are not being targeted? Where is some assurance that everyone gets fair treatment that society is not stacked against people of color? Again, I could only listen. The guns and the violence, the injustice, the fear remind us that we have not come as far as we might like to think, despite the Civil Rights Act of 50 years ago and other efforts toward progress and prosperity for all. It has been just over two weeks since Michael Brown was shot by a police officer in Ferguson, Missouri. The days since that tragic event have grabbed our attention and continue to challenge our society, there are so many questions. A few days ago, J. Herbert Nelson, Presbyterian minister and director of the PCUSA Office of Public Witness in Washington, D.C., released a statement and said this in part. And I quote, The Presbyterian Church USA is called through our confessional documents to be the church of every age. God's reconciling work in Jesus Christ and the mission of reconciliation to which God has called His church are the heart of the gospel in any age. Our generation stands in particular need of reconciliation in Christ. It's not enough for us as Christians to be appalled or sad while viewing Ferguson, Missouri as a place beyond our own reality. We must be clear that the issues of this shooting are deeper than anything one trial can resolve. Yes, it's about the shattered hopes of a family that has lost a loved one, a loss which will reverberate for generations, but it is also deeply and truly about the social sin of prejudice, bigotry, and institutionalized racism which is embedded in our social structures, our justice systems, and the laws by which we claim to offer freedom to each other. As Presbyterians, we must stop giving lip service to a new church while failing to confront the vestiges of racism in our church and society. Our work on racism in the United States is historic in some instances, but insignificant at many recent junctures in our social history, End quote. We do have some historic involvement as Presbyterians against injustice and racism. My own father, a Presbyterian minister serving in Auburn, Alabama in the late 50s and early 60s, received a letter of commendation from then Attorney General Bobby Kennedy, commending him for his Efforts to help integrate Auburn University in the face of great and threatening opposition. Some people in this room know a lot more about that than I do. They were there. Ginger's Presbyterian minister father, as you may know, participated with other Presbyterians in the March on Washington in 1963 and later in Atlanta, worked with Martin Luther King and others. Our church and some of you in this room indeed have a great history of striving for justice and reconciliation in the face of racism and other challenges as we're called to work for the coming reign of God into our midst. We also have much work to do, much work to do. And we cannot just have a pulpit exchange and partnerships across our city. We're called to be engaged in the emerging reign of God even today working to end violence and injustice, working to educate and integrate so that God's intentions of joy and God's intentions for justice for all fill our streets. Not anger, not terror, not alienation, not animosity. God's justice and joy fill our streets. It was some weeks ago that I decided to preach on this passage from Nehemiah that I'm preaching on today. I've long been taken with this story of, from Nehemiah, Nehemiah, and the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem. But I've never preached a sermon on this story. Here's the verse that is at the heart of this story. It comes from chapter 4, 17 and 18. Listen for the word of the Lord. The burden bearers carried their loads in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and with the other held a weapon. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So the setting of this story for Nehemiah is around 500 B.C., You might remember that around 600 B.C., a hundred years earlier, Israel's prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah were predicting the fall of Israel. Israel had wandered away from faithfulness, the prophets were saying. God's people had minimized worship and minimized serving God in favor of profit and political gain. Israel's kings and Israel's priests had traded in obedience for selfishness and success in the world's terms. Therefore, the Babylonians were coming to squash the people, coming to sack the city, coming to destroy the temple, and coming to overthrow the king. And all of those people City, temple, king, had long been the promised signs that these were God's people and they were secure. Indeed, soon after 600 BC, Jerusalem was sacked and the temple was destroyed and the king was killed and many of God's people were carried away, marched all the way into exile in Babylon, which would be present-day Iraq. Within 100 years of that sacking, by 500 B.C., the Persians had assumed control of the whole region. The Persians allowed the Hebrew people to return to their land. They even allowed them to worship and carry on and rebuild. Nehemiah is the person who becomes, in essence, the city planner. Leading the rebuilding efforts in Jerusalem. He has a call by God to restore Jerusalem, rebuilding the walls around the city, pursuing social reforms, and generally giving life to the restored community in the land, back in the land that God had promised long ago. But this rebuilding is complicated. As you might think, lots has happened in this 100 years since the Babylonians sacked the place and chased the people or took the people to exile. In fact, there's significant opposition to Nehemiah's plans. As you might guess, various personalities get involved with different political agendas. Nehemiah seems to have clarity about what is supposed to happen. Other people object to Nehemiah's plans. Who gave him the right to be in charge? They want to know. Where was he across the last decades when Jerusalem was getting along fine before he showed up with all these plans? Accusations began to multiply. Rumors spread about Nehemiah and his intentions. Does this sound familiar? Bickering and badgering about city projects? This goes back thousands of years. For Nehemiah, ridicule and mocking take center stage. People attack Nehemiah's plans. In fact, in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, you're going to use these materials for the wall? These materials? Uh, it won't stand the weight of a fox running on the wall. It'll crumble. Intimidation follows accusations those opposed to Nehemiah threaten to attack Jerusalem bury it in a state of confusion they even threaten to kill Nehemiah of course, this makes the workers, the builders working on the wall nervous who look for any excuse to quit doing the work, quit that job that they're supposed to be doing. In addition, there are economic and social woes emerging in the area. Can we build the wall and also collect and, and bring in the crops that we need to survive? They're asking, will this, while this wall is being built, who's going to bring in the crops They want to know. So great uncertainty is everywhere. Through prayer, on his knees, as Ginger says, through focused faithfulness, Nehemiah leads the people. He knows he has important work to do. God's work. Keep building the wall. Keep working on progress and social reforms because it's God's people here, and we need to reveal God is present and at work here. When the workers feel endangered, he sets up defenders and arms the builders, they also began sleeping inside the wall for safety, and as our verse says, they keep on building, even if they have to do it with one arm, carrying their loads and holding their weapon in their other arm. Nehemiah doesn't let anything get in the way of his mission to rebuild the wall and give stability and hope to God's people in this place, in this time. This story feels so very pertinent. We're called always, all of us, to be focused on faithfulness. The image of this story, of rebuilding the wall, doing God's work, fulfilling God's purposes, carrying out faithful work with one hand and with the other holding a weapon. In other words, figuring out how to deal with the world and the pressures and the distractions and the threats and the ridicule and the rumors, the things that want to drag us away from faithfulness. This is actually where we often find ourselves. Balancing those things. Life is never so easily divided into secular and sacred. We have to live and focus on faithfulness in every realm of life. Every day I get an email, it's called the Daily Dig. These are very thoughtful and challenging reflections from faithful writers, some of whom come from many years ago, and some of whom are contemporary. And these words in this daily email called the Daily Dig often challenge me to be more focused and more faithful. In a recent Daily Dig, I got this message. It came from Eberhard Arnold, a German Christian philosopher and theologian who in the 1920s formed the Bruderhof community, which was centered on the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to these words. Humanity must turn around. What good are all its religious practices? What good are all its Church services, what point is there in all its devout singing if God's will is not done and hands remain steeped in blood? What does people's faith mean if injustice is done to the poor as casually as one drinks a glass of water? What good is it to sit and profess the divine if not even a little finger is lifted when countless children and poor people die? I think these days, indeed all days, call for focused faithfulness as we seek to do God's will and promote the reign of God in our cities and across the world, promote reconciliation and justice and hope for all people. We cannot just come to church or claim the word Christian and read the news. We're called to be agents of light and hope and wholeness always the story of nehemiah reminds us that turning the other cheek is not the only way to be faithful it's often a balancing act sorting out how do we fulfill god's plans amidst the challenges and circumstances that we find ourselves in we're called always to stay focused and engaged to take action and be ready As we strive to do God's work in the world. Like Nehemiah, despite the challenges and opposition to the rebuilding of the walls. Like Nehemiah, we are called to find ways to stay focused. To build a better world. And we have work to do. We have work to do on partnerships and relationships that make for a saner, safer world. We have to hear the cries of our African-American sisters and brothers and work on those questions and keep working on justice and peace in our communities. We have to educate and we have to integrate so our communities are not so divided on racial lines or economic lines. We have to make sure that officers in our police departments look like And know the communities in which they're serving. And we have to hold everyone accountable when life and community is destroyed. The main thing is always to be God's people. To be God's people and working for God's purposes. That's our calling. That's what led to Nehemiah's success. Amidst all he was dealing with, that has to be our goal. Focus on faithfulness. It's so very interesting in this story of Nehemiah that all the detractors of Nehemiah's plans were taunting and ridiculing those working on rebuilding the wall. They even were calling them the you feeble Jews, you feeble Jews who don't know what you're doing. That's what they were saying. They were threatening to attack them. They were threatening to destroy them and their efforts. So Nehemiah had the workers build with one arm and hold their weapon with the other arm. But here's the interesting thing. The verb used in the Hebrew for holding the weapon is the same word used multiple times in this whole story about rebuilding the wall. The goal of the workers is to strengthen the walls. The goal of the workers is to repair the walls of the city so it can be once again a city where God's presence is revealed, where God's purposes are lived out. Rebuild, strengthen, repair the walls so that the city can be a symbol of God's presence, a place where faithfulness prospers. Holding a weapon. And repairing the walls have the same goal strengthening life for God's purposes, strengthening life for the emerging reign of God. Indeed, nowhere in this story do they ever have to use that weapon that they're holding. Nowhere in the story is there a report of a fight. It's about focus. It's about faithfulness. It's about living and serving God's purposes. See, we don't just live. We're called to live and serve God. We don't just worship God. We're called to act for God in commitment, in care, in love, in justice, in hope for God's reign to emerge in our midst. And we have so much work to do. May God always guide us. May God give us courage to act, to serve, to see, to talk, to work, always for the coming reign of God, for faithfulness, always. Amen. Let us pray. Pour your Spirit upon us, O God. Focus our lives on Jesus Christ so that all we do is honor and serve Him. Amen.